That was a sound of a vocalian organ. The Shadow Traps, Episode 20, Vocalion New York The Le Princes, as ever, had been working on numerous overlapping projects, earning money and testing out new ideas. Whitley's Lincrusta Walton dream had imploded in 1882 and he had begun a period of travel which seems to have been a continuation of his relentless quest for a new project. Maybe this time success would be at hand. Maybe this time, or this time, or next time. Le Prince, having accompanied John on one of his trips out west, returned to New York with new ideas for firing pottery picked up from Mexican craftspeople who still use the techniques used by the Aztecs. Lizzie and the family had come over to New York in 1882 and Le Prince had attempted to continue work in Encrusta Walton with the firm Le Prince and Pepper, still based in the showroom at Union Square. In 1883, Lizzie had got work as head of the art department at the New York Institution for the Instruction of the Deaf and Dumb, and Le Prince also found employment as manager of a team of artists creating cycloramas of Civil War battles under the talented French panoramist Théophile Poirpeau. The Le Princes had moved to an old but elegant residence known as the Belmont House in the well-to-do northern neighbourhoods to which the middle classes of New York gravitated. In a sense, the area was similar to Roundhay in Leeds, an area of countryside fast becoming absorbed into the city to the south, whose blocky buildings crept nearer to the upland streets fields and woods. The house was surrounded by pastures and the two youngest Le Prince boys, Joseph and Fernand, roamed them, playing and adventuring. Malaria was prevalent in the neighbourhoods around and thereabouts and Fernand found himself a victim to it time and again, often missing school with chills and fevers and Joseph, who did not succumb, jealously offered up small prayers that he might fall grateful prey to the disease so that he too could miss school. And thus, life continued. But Belmont House would soon have a new guest. The spring of 1884 also saw the reappearance of John Robinson Whitley in New York. Charles Lowe, in the book Four National Exhibitions in London and their organiser, described Whitley's travels once more. Mr. Whitley found himself in New York after a tour undertaken for the restoration of his health that had been somewhat impaired by 20 years of hard work. A tour which had extended to the West Indies, Mexico, California and other portions of the United States. Whitley did indeed work hard, but it's interesting to see the unfailingly complimentary book for exhibitions 
described this period of travel as being for the restoration of his health after hard work without any reference to the undeniable failure of his Lincrusta Walton business. The book seems to be part of John Whitley's great act of self-reinvention. As the song went, Oh, what was your name in the States? There is a photograph of John Whitley taken on the steps of Belmont House surrounded by all the members of the Le Prince family except Adolf, who I would guess is the one taking the photograph. The photograph is said to have been taken in 1885. John Whitley was travelling back and forth between Europe and America because of a new business venture and here he is paying a visit to his brother-in-law and sister and his nephews and nieces. John, or Jack as he was referred to, sits in the middle of the group which forms a circle around him. So we have top left Joseph arms crossed a lock of dark hair protruding from his cap and going clockwise a may stern-faced and with a dog on her lap marie her hand resting on the paw of a second dog then below and to the right louis le prince in a straw hat then below louis and central a young fernand a shock of dark hair pushing back his cap up and to the left we have lizzie with a ruffled white scarf and a hint of a smile. In the centre of them all is John Whitley. What strikes me about the photograph is that how John at first glance seems to dominate it. He sits there, his legs apart, one arm rested on his knee, as much of a physical presence as a six foot three or four Louis. Whitley's straw hat is set at an angle on his head and he smiles a relaxed, confident smile. Louis Next to him is actually pushed out to the side somewhat, one shoulder and knee cut out of the shot, and he leans inward slightly, as if to make sure he's not out of it entirely. And yet, despite John's dominance, looking at the photograph, it also strikes me that the Le Princes quietly hold their own. I've seen many family portraits of the time where the subjects appear formal, stiff, reluctant, the Le Princes are different. Louis, for example, despite being to one side, is smiling and at ease. Each member of the family has their own individual pose, their own magnetism. They all seem comfortable in their skins and as a result it is an attractive picture. I've seen several photographs of the Le Prince family members and they almost always look relaxed and comfortable together. They look close. They also often somehow manage to look simultaneously respectable and slightly rakish. There's usually a glint in the eye or a flash of humour that comes through the pose. The Le Princes are an easy family to like. It was approximately around the time of this photograph that John Whitley and Louis Le Prince got indirectly involved with another scheme that involved patents. A scheme that has been more or less completely overlooked in biographies of Le Prince.
Near the middle of Lizzie's unpublished memoirs, there is a brief and unexpected three-paragraph digression. It begins, One day, as my brother was calling Archibald Ramsden of Leeds, the proprietor of London's fashionable music store, a young man passed out. Do you know who that is? said Ramsden. I do not, Whitley replied. Well, he is the youngest son of Bailey Hamilton, and he has more brains than money. He has just invented what he calls a vocalion, and it is going to revolutionise the piano trade. Lizzie's memoirs continued, All the world loves a lover, and when my brother learned further that a love marriage depended on the invention's success, he advised Ramsden to accompany him to New York. Now, there's a thicket of loose ends here, so let's start to unpick things a little. Bailey Hamilton was John Bailey Hamilton, known as James, son of Admiral William Alexander Bailey Hamilton, who would become secretary to the Admiralty. He was a self-financed inventor who tried to emulate the sound of musical instruments using free reeds, which are small strips of material, not necessarily reeds themselves, they could be anything from strips of bamboo to metal, and they are set over a hole that's just slightly bigger than the reed itself. The reed is fixed at one end only, and so when air pressure is applied to it, either by blowing or suction, the reed will vibrate, which in turn creates a column of vibrating air from which the sound of the instrument is produced. Bailey Hamilton worked with free reeds and incorporated various devices, such as sympathetically vibrating strings, wires and resonator boxes. As the New York Times would later describe it, Mr. Hamilton's vocalion organ is founded on a rational treatment of the reed by a system copied as closely as possible after that employed by nature in the human throat. This is interesting and we'll return to it later. But what about Lizzie's comment regarding a love marriage? Well, it doesn't seem to be that far from the truth. Bailey Hamilton seems to have committed to the success of his work to such an extent that when he did marry in 1886, at Westminster Abbey no less, to Lady Evelyn Campbell, the fourth daughter of the Duke of Argyle, and where a vocalion played throughout, a guest noted that their future depends for the bread and butter of life on that very instrument. But how did he come across Ramsden? And who was Archibald Ramsden? the person who seems to have somehow facilitated the Vocalion's journey to the States. Well, you've already met him very, very briefly in 1873 at the first conversazione of the Leeds Philosophical and Literary Society that Le Prince would have attended as a member, where Ramsden exhibited a mellow piano which, by an ingenious contrivance, effective crescendo and vibrato effects can be easily secured. Archibald Ramsden was an avuncular and much-loved musician and musical entrepreneur from Leeds. A singer of some note, he went on to open a large musical establishment at Park Row in Leeds, a minute or so away from Park Square, where the Le Princes had lived. Ramsden also innovated, and with William Dawes, an engineer from Leeds, he patented improvements to organs and harmoniums. He was an active member of Leeds's cultural scene and we can only speculate whether or not the Le Princes attended any of the musical soirees he hosted at Park Row. 
the Laprinces do seem to have taken an interest in Leeds' musical societies. Ramsden moved to London and opened a showroom there on Bond Street. Bailey Hamilton, who lived on Studland Street, Hammersmith in London, was not that far away. Ramsden was also well known for his funny stories and would be the founder of the UB Quiet Club, where, for five shillings, a member had the right at any time that you are passing up Bond Street with a friend to enter Mr Ramsden's premises and demand two whiskies with soda. This club had many notable members, including the composer Edward Elgar. It was a social club of, I quote, downright good fellows, and even had its own coat of arms, with two bottles, a cudgel and a box of cigars on its heraldic shield. A celebrated singer, Hans Richter, would later remember a club dinner in 1895 and commented that Ramsden had fine paintings but smells strongly of whisky. Ramsden knew Whitley and was virtually neighbours with the Le Princes, as well as attending the same conversaciones and exhibitions as them. He was also an entrepreneur, an innovator with artistic talent. Just the kind of attributes that remind us of Le Prince and Whitley. And like Le Prince and Whitley, he came over to the States in the 1880s to try and introduce innovative new products to the American middle classes. And in a Whitley-esque flourish, Ramsden, the son of an innkeeper who obviously relished his success in life, put himself down on the passenger list of one of his voyages to the United States as a nobleman. Oh, what was your name in the States, indeed? If Ramsden seems cut from the same cloth as John Whitley, the invention he was championing would undoubtedly have appealed to Le Prince. In fact, Lizzie writes in her memoirs that In New York we had all become very much interested. That was interested in Ramsden's project and Louis Le Prince somehow and in some capacity helped Ramsden and Bailey Hamilton with the sale of the Vocalion patent in the United States. There were patents for reed organs by Hamilton in 1882 and 1884. The latter, sat here before me, has been witnessed by Archibald Ramsden. Lizzie wrote that some patent rights were sold successfully and the wedding took place. Now, if Lizzie is correct and has her order right, then seeing as the Bailey Hamilton wedding took place around the middle of 1886, the Prince's involvement with the Vocalion patent would have been some time between 1884 and 1886. Histories of the Vocalion help a little but not a lot. There seem to be two broad versions of what happened in the States. One, where Hamilton moved his company to Worcester, Massachusetts and manufactured organs labelled as Hamilton Stroke Vocalion, but that around 1886, according to the Organ Historical Society, Hamilton left for reasons unknown. It is also claimed that Hamilton joined with a firm of Mason and Hamlin to develop the instrument further, but that this partnership was not successful. And really, these two versions aren't actually mutually exclusive. And they both do agree on something, that there was some kind of Whitley-esque departure by Hamilton, and it seems to have occurred about two years after coming to the States, which is, incidentally, about the same time it took for Whitley to depart the Lynn Walton business.
I'm interested in these echoes and connections between all these stories. We have a network of Leeds expats who also seem to be larger-than-life characters with Archibald Ramsden straight out of the John Whitley playbook of reinvention and hype. And we also have an inventor committed to his work to the extent that the success of his marriage is said to have depended on it. We also have an invention whose birth was not clear-cut because like film, in fact like just about every invention, other inventors claim to have done similar things to Hamilton. And we also have with a Vercalian another invention that seemed to fail in the States under the person who brought it and that seemed to achieve some kind of success with others gaining the credit and the income. And we have a story of merchant adventure and very mixed fortunes. The story of the Vercalian has so many echoes of the stories of Lincrusta Walton and of film that it makes me feel that the prince understood, experienced, even at one remove, this kind of journey several times in his life. I think there's another connection which is the original reason I wanted to rescue this fragment of anecdote about the Vercalian from the pages of Lizzie's memoirs. The sound of the Vercalian, as you heard, is reminiscent of a church organ, which is what it was, and is a kind of approximation of a human choir. It's an early form of synthesizer. And I want to take another look at the New York Times description of it, which said that the use of a vibrating reed is part of a system copied as closely as possible after that employed by nature in the human throat. And I noticed that this comparison was developed in the language of the 1884 US patent, which is labelled various cylindrical passages in the design, the nostrils and the mouths. The Vocalion emulated the throat as a motion picture camera would emulate the eye. It's fascinating to me that the prince had an involvement with this early form of synthesizer, this artistic device born from the materials and processes of the industrial age, this piece of industrial art, if you like. And this involvement took place around the time that Le Prince would start work on his first moving picture machines. Lizzie writes in her memoirs that one day when my old piano was called for at Belmont, that a brand new chickering piano was left in its place. Ramsden called this piano, given in recognition of my husband's help in making the sale of the Vercalian patent, his carte de visite d'adieu. Incidentally, a chickering piano was a very highly regarded make in the 19th century. Whatever Le Prince did to help Ramsden, Ramsden appreciated it. Le Prince had a wonderful memory. He would remember stories to tell the children and he would remember melodies from trips to the opera. Some nights, after returning from a performance, he would play a piece that he had heard. The notes that filled the Belmont house would have come I like to think, from the chickering piano given to the Le Princes by the nobleman who never was 
Archibald Rumsden of Leeds. And we can follow the storylines even farther if we want. Go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Go to the Beatles exhibit and you will see the instrument on which Lennon McCartney wrote such pop classics as I Want to Hold Your Hand and Eleanor Rigby. The instrument is an Archibald Ramsden upright piano. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more about the project or to support it in any way, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.